Chapter Ten, Part Two of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Rasco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ten, Part Two. For some little time past, Count Mifa had seemed uneasy. One morning, in a very agitated state, he placed under Nana's eyes an anonymous letter in which she saw, in the first lines, that she was accused of being unfaithful to the Count with Vandeuvre and the two Hugons. It's false! It's false! she exclaimed energetically with an extraordinary accent of truthfulness. You swear it? asked Mifa, already relieved. Oh, on what you like, on my child's head. But the letter was long. Afterwards it went on to recount her connection with Satin in the most ignoble terms. When she reached the end, she smiled. Now I know where it comes from, said she simply. And as Mifa wished for a denial of the latter part, she resumed coolly. That, my dear, is a thing which does not concern you. What can it matter to you? She did not deny it. His words showed his disgust. Then she shrugged her shoulders. Where did he spring from? That sort of thing happened everywhere, and she named her friends. She even swore that ladies in the best positions were no strangers to it. In short, to hear her, there was nothing more common or more natural. What was not true was not true. He had seen just before how indignant she was about Vendeuvre and the Tuigons. Ah, had that been true, he would have done right in strangling her. But what was the use of telling him a lie about a matter of no consequence? And she kept repeating, Come now, what can it matter to you? Then, as he continued to complain, she silenced him, saying in a rough voice, Well, my friend, if it doesn't please you, you have a very simple remedy. The doors are all open. You must either take me as I am or leave me alone. He bowed his head. In his heart he was pleased with the young woman's protestations. She, seeing her power, no longer hesitated employing it, and from that time Satin was openly installed as part of the establishment, on the same footing as the gentleman. Vendeuvre had not required the anonymous letter to understand what was going on. He joked about it, and had little quarrels of jealousy with Satin, whilst Philippe and Georges treated her as a comrade, shaking hands with her and saying some very equivocal things. Nana had an adventure. One night, having been abandoned by the hussy, she had gone to dine in the Rue des Mertiers without being able to come across her. While she was eating alone, Degonet made his appearance. Though he had settled down, he came there occasionally, his old vices getting the better of him, trusting not to meet any of his friends in those dark corners of Parisian abomination. Consequently, Nana's presence seemed rather to put him out at first, but he was not the man to beat a retreat. He advanced, smiling. He asked if Madame would permit him to dine at her table. Seeing him inclined to joke, Nana put on her grand cold air and sharply replied, Seat yourself wherever you please, sir. We are in a public place. Commenced in this style, the conversation became very funny. But when the dessert was served, Nana, feeling bored and burning to triumph, put her elbows on the table and then resumed her old familiar way. Well, and your marriage, my boy, how is it getting on? Not very well, admitted Dagonet. As a matter of fact, when about to venture to ask for the young lady's hand, he had encountered such a coldness on the Count's part that he had prudently abstained from doing so. It seemed to him that it was all up. Nana looked him straight in the face with her bright eyes, her chin in her hand, an ironic smile on her lips. Ah, so I'm a hussy, she resumed slowly. Ah, so you must deliver the future father-in-law from my clutches. Well, really, for an intelligent fellow, you're a damned fool. What, 
you go and say a lot of nasty things to a man who adores me and who tells me everything. Listen, your marriage will come off if I choose, my boy. For a few minutes he had been of the same opinion. A project of complete submission was forming in his mind. However, he continued to joke, not wishing to let the matter become a serious one. And after putting on his gloves, he asked her in the most correct manner for the hand of Mademoiselle Estelle de Beuville. She ended by laughing as though being tickled. Oh, that Mimi! It was impossible to be angry with him. Dagonet's great success with the ladies were due to the softness of his voice a voice of a musical purity and suppleness, which had caused him to be nicknamed among the gay women Velvet Mouth. All yielded beneath the sonorous caress with which he enveloped them. He knew his power, so he lulled her with an endless string of words telling her all sorts of stupid stories. When they quitted the table she was quite rosy, trembling on his arm, reconquered. As the day was very fine she dismissed her carriage and accompanied him on foot as far as his lodging. Then, naturally, she went in with him. Two hours later, she said, as she was putting on her things again, So, Mimi, you want this marriage to come off? Well, he murmured, it's the best thing I can do. You know I'm quite stumped. After a short silence, she resumed, All right, I'm willing. I'll help you. You know she's as dry as a faggot. But never mind, as you're all agreeable. Oh, I'm obliging. I'll settle it for you. Then, bursting out laughing, her bosom still uncovered, she added, "'Only what will you give me?' He had seized hold of her and was kissing her shoulders in a transport of gratitude. She, very gay, quivering, struggled and threw herself back. "'Ah, I know,' she exclaimed, excited by this play. "'Listen, this is what I must have for my commission. "'On your wedding day you must bring me the Hansel of your innocence, you understand?' "'That's it.' That's it, said he, laughing even more than she did. The bargain amused them. They thought it very funny. It so happened that on the morrow there was a dinner party at Nana's, that is, the usual Thursday gathering. Mifa, Vendeuvre, the two Hugon and Satin. The Count arrived early. He was in want of eighty thousand francs to rid the young woman of two or three debts, and to present her with a set of sapphires for which she had a great longing. As he had already eaten considerably into his fortune, he wished to meet with a money-lender not yet daring to sell a portion of his estates. So, by Nana's advice, he had applied to La Bordette. But the latter, considering it too big a matter for himself, had desired to speak of it to the hairdresser Francis, who was always willing to be useful to his customers. The Count placed himself in the hands of these gentlemen, merely requesting that his name should not be mentioned. They both agreed to keep his acceptance for one hundred thousand francs in their possession, and they excused themselves for the twenty thousand francs of interest by railing against the swindling usurers to whom, as they said, they had been forced to apply. When Mifa was ushered in, Francis was just finishing Nana's headdress. La Bordette was also in the dressing-room, in his familiar fashion of a friend of no consequence. On seeing the count, he discreetly placed a heavy bundle of banknotes among the powders and the pomades, and the bill was accepted on a corner of the marble dressing-table. Nana wished La Bordette to remain to dinner, but he declined, as he was showing a rich foreigner about Paris. However, Mifa having taken him on one side to beg him to go to Beggars, the jeweller, and bring him back the set of sapphires which he wished to have as a surprise for the young woman that very night, La Bordette willingly undertook the commission. Half an hour later, Julien privately handed the Count the case of jewels. During dinner, Nana was very nervous. 
the sight of the eighty thousand francs had upset her. To think that all that money was going to be paid away to tradespeople. It annoyed her immensely. As soon as the soup was served in that superb dining-room illuminated with the reflection of the silver plate and the crystal ware, she became sentimental and began to praise the joys of poverty. The men were in evening dress. She herself wore a dress of embroidered white satin, whilst satin, more modest and in black silk, had merely a golden heart, a present from her darling friend, at her throat. And behind the guests, Julien and François waited, assisted by Zoe, all three looking very dignified. I certainly amused myself a great deal more when I was without a sou, Nana kept repeating. She had Mifa on her right and Vendeuvre on her left, but she scarcely looked at them, being entirely occupied with satin enthroned in front of her between Philippe and Georges. Eh, hey, my love, she said at each phrase, didn't we used to laugh at that time, when we went to old Mother Joss's school in the Rue Polonceau? They were then serving the roast. The two women launched forth into recollections of their young days. They every now and then had a longing for gossip, a sudden desire to stir up all the mud of their youth, and it was invariably when men were present, as though yielding to a mania for making them acquainted with the dung-heap whence they sprouted. The gentlemen turned pale and glanced about in an embarrassed manner. The two Hugon tried to laugh, whilst Vendeuvre nervously twirled his beard, and Mufa looked more solemn than ever. "'Do you remember Victor?' asked Nana. "'He was a depraved youngster.' He used to take little girls into the cellars. I remember, replied Satin, and I remember, too, the big courtyard at your place. There was a doorkeeper with a broom. Mother Bush, she is dead. And I can still see your shop. Your mother was awfully stout. One night when we were playing, your father came home drunk. Oh, so drunk. At this moment, Vendeuvre essayed a diversion by interrupting the ladies in the midst of their reminiscences. I say, my dear, I should like some more truffles. They are excellent. I had some yesterday at the Duc de Corbreuse, which were not to be compared to these. Julien, hand the truffles, said Nana roughly. Then she resumed. Ah, yes, Papa was very foolish. What a tumble-down! Ah, if you had only seen it! A regular plunge! Such misery! I can well say that I have tasted of all sorts, and it's a miracle I didn't leave my carcass there, the same as Papa and Mama. This time Mifa, who had been nervously playing with a knife, ventured to interfere. It is not a very amusing subject you are talking about. Hey, what, not amusing? exclaimed she, crushing him with a look. I don't suppose it is amusing. You should have sent us some bread, my dear. Oh, as you know I'm a true-hearted girl, I say what I think. Mama was a washerwoman, Papa used to get drunk, and he died from it. There. If that doesn't suit you, if you're ashamed of my family. They all protested. What was she thinking of? They respected her family. But she continued. If you're ashamed of my family, well, leave me, for I'm not one of those women who disown their father and mother. You must take me with them, do you hear? They took her, they accepted the father and the mother, the past, everything she wished. With their eyes fixed on the tablecloth, they all four now made themselves small, whilst she kept them beneath her muddy old shoes of the Rue de la Goutte d'Or with the passion of her all-powerful will. And she was slow to lay down her arms. They might bring her no end of fortunes, build her innumerable palaces, still she would ever regret the time when she used to chew apples with the peel on. 
It was a fraud, that idiotic money. It was only invented for tradespeople. Then her outburst ended in a sentimental longing for a simple way of living, with one's heart in one's hand in the midst of an universal benevolence. But at that moment she caught sight of Julien standing with his arms hanging by his sides and doing nothing. Well, what? Pour out the champagne, said she. Why are you looking at me like a silly gander? During the row the servants had not even smiled. They seemed not to hear, becoming more majestic the more Madame forgot herself. Julien poured out the champagne without flinching. Unfortunately, François, who was handing round the fruit, held the dish too much on one side, and the apples, the pears, the grapes rolled all over the table. "'Stupid fool!' cried Nana. The footman made the mistake of trying to explain that the fruit was not placed securely on the dish. Zoe had disturbed it in removing some oranges. "'Then,' said Nana, "'Zoe's a fool.' "'But, madame,' murmured the maid, very much hurt. At this Madame rose, and with a gesture of royal authority said curtly, "'That's enough, I think. Leave the room, all of you. We no longer require you.' This execution calmed her. She at once became very quiet and very amiable. The dessert passed off most pleasantly, and gentlemen were greatly amused at having to help themselves. But Satin, who had peeled a pear, went to eat it standing up behind her darling, leaning against her shoulders, and whispering things in her ear which made them both laugh very much. Then she wished to share her last piece of pear, and held it out to Nana between her teeth, and their lips touched as they finished the fruit in a kiss. This produced a comical protest from the gentlemen. Philippe called to them not to stand on ceremony. Vendeuvre asked if they would like him to leave the room. Georges went and took hold of Satin round the waist and led her back to her seat. "'How silly you are,' said Nana. "'You make the little darling blush. "'Never mind, my love. "'Don't take any notice of them. "'That's our business.' And turning towards Mifa, who was looking on in his solemn way, she added, "'Isn't it, dear?' "'Yes, certainly,' murmured he, slowly nodding his head. There were no more protests. In the midst of these gentlemen, of these great names, these ancient integrities, the two women seated in front of each other, exchanging tender glances, imposed themselves, and reigned with the cool abuse of their sex and their avowed contempt for man. They applauded. The coffee was served upstairs in the parlor. Two lamps lighted up with their feeble light the rose-color hangings, the lacquer and old gold knick-knacks. There was at this hour of the night, in the midst of the caskets, the bronzes, the china, a discreet glimmer which illumined the gold and ivory incrustations, shone on the gloss of some carved wand and watered a panel with a silky reflex. The afternoon fire had burnt low, it was very warm, a debilitating heat was confined by the heavy curtains and hangings. And in this room, all full of Nana's private life, where her gloves, a handkerchief, an open book lay scattered about, one met her free from all ceremony, with her odor of violets, her jolly girl kind of disorder, creating a charming effect amongst all that wealth. Whilst the easy chairs as big as beds and the sofas as deep as alcoves seemed to invite to somnolence, forgetful of the flight of time, to sweet words whispered in the shadows of their corners. Satin went and stretched herself out on a sofa near the fireplace. She lit a cigarette. But Vendeuvre amused himself with pretending to be awfully jealous of her, and threatened to challenge her if she again turned Nana from her duties. Philippe and Georges joined in, teased her, and pinched her so hard that she ended by crying out, "'Darling, darling, do make them leave off. They're annoying me again.' 
Come, leave her alone, said Nana seriously. You know I won't have her teased. And you, my dearie, why do you always go with them when you know they are so foolish? Satin, very red in the face and putting out her tongue, went into the dressing-room, the open door of which showed the pale marble lighted up by the subdued flame of a gas-jet enclosed in a ground-glass globe. Then Nana conversed with the four men with the charm pertaining to the mistress of a household. She had been reading during the day a novel that had created a great sensation, The History of a Courtesan, and she was disgusted. She said it was all false, showing besides an indignant repugnance for such filthy literature, which had the pretension of being true to nature, as though one could describe everything, as though a novel ought not to be written just to while away a pleasant hour. Regarding books and plays, Nana had very fixed opinions. She wished for noble and tender works, things to set her thinking and to elevate her soul. Then the conversation, having turned on the troubles that were agitating Paris, on the incendiary newspaper articles, the attempts at riot following the call to arms enunciated every night at public meetings, she vented her wrath on the Republicans. Whatever did they want, those dirty fellows who never washed themselves? Wasn't everyone happy? Hadn't the emperor done everything for the people? A lot of swine, these people. She knew them. She could speak of them. And forgetting the respect she had just exacted at the dinner-table for her little world of the Rue de la Goutte d'Or, she assailed her relations and friends of bygone days with all the disgust and the horror of a woman arrived at the top of the tree. It so happened that very afternoon she had read in the Figaro the report of a public meeting written in a most comical style, and the recollection of which still made her laugh on account of the slang words used and the description of a disgusting drunkard who had been turned out. Oh, those drunkards, said she with an air of repugnance. No, really now, their republic would be a great misfortune for everyone. Ah, may God preserve the emperor as long as possible. God will hear you, my dear, solemnly replied Mifa. But never fear, the emperor is strong. He liked to see that she had such good feelings. They were both of the same opinion in politics. Vendeuvre and Lieutenant Hugon were also full of jokes about the roughs, braying asses who bolted at the sight of a bayonet. Georges that night remained pale and gloomy. What's the matter with the baby? asked Nana, noticing how quiet he was. Nothing, I'm listening, murmured he. But he was suffering. On leaving the dining-room he had overheard Philippe joking with the young woman, and now it was Philippe and not he who was seated beside her. His chest heaved and seemed ready to burst without his knowing why. He could not bear them to be together. He had such wicked thoughts that a lump rose in his throat and he felt ashamed in spite of his anguish. He, who laughed about Satin, who had endured Steiner, then Mifa, then all the others, revolted, and became enraged at the idea that Philippe might one day become that woman's lover. Here, take Bijou, said she to console him, passing him the little dog which was sleeping on her lap. And Georges became quite lively again, holding something belonging to her, that animal full of the warmth of her knees. The conversation had fallen on a run of bad luck Vendeuvre had had the night before at the Cercle Imperial. Mifa, who was no player, expressed his surprise. But Vendeuvre, smiling, alluded to his approaching ruin, of which Paris already had begun to talk. It did not matter much how the end came, the thing was to end well. 
For some time past, Nana had noticed he was nervous, with wrinkles at the corners of his mouth and a vacillating look in his bright eyes. He retained his aristocratic haughtiness, the refined elegance of his impoverished race, and as yet it was only a slight vertigo at times beneath that cranium emptied by women and play. One night that he passed with her he had frightened her with some atrocious idea. He was thinking of shutting himself up in his stable with his horses and setting fire to the place when he had reached the end of his tether. At this time his only hope was in a horse named Lusignan, which was in training for the grand prize of Paris. He lived on this horse which sustained his damaged credit. Every time Nana wanted money, he put her off till the month of June if Lusignan won. Bah, said she jokingly, he can afford to lose as he is going to clear out everyone at the races. He merely replied with a mysterious little smile, then added lightly, By the way, I have taken the liberty of naming a filly of mine, only an outsider after you. Nana, Nana, it sounds very well. You are not annoyed. Annoyed? Why? said she, in reality greatly delighted. The conversation continued. They were talking of an execution shortly to take place, and which the young woman wanted to see, when Satin appeared at the dressing-room door and called Nana in a supplicating voice. The latter rose at once and left the gentlemen who were taking their ease, puffing their cigars, and discussing a very grave question, as to how far a murderer in a chronic state of alcoholism is responsible for his actions. In the dressing-room, Zoe was seated on a chair, crying bitterly, whilst Satin was vainly endeavouring to console her. "'What's the matter?' asked Nana in surprise. "'Oh, darling, speak to her,' said Satin. "'For the last twenty minutes I've been trying to reason with her. She's crying because you called her a fool.' "'Yes, madame. It's very hard. It's very hard,' stuttered Zoe, almost choked by a fresh fit of sobbing. This sight moved the young woman. She said some kind words, and as the other did not become calmer, she sat down before her and put her arm round her waist with a gesture of affectionate familiarity. But you silly girl, I said fool just the same as I should have said something else. I didn't mean it. I was in a passion. There, I was wrong. Now do leave off crying. I love madame so much, stammered Zoe. "'after all that I have done for madame.' "'Then Nana kissed the maid. "'After which, wishing to show that she was not angry, "'she gave her a dress that she had worn only three times. "'Their quarrels always ended in presence. "'Zoe wiped her eyes with her handkerchief, "'and before carrying the dress off on her arm, "'she said that they were all very sad down in the kitchen, "'that Julien and François had not been able to eat any dinner, "'as madame's anger had taken away all their appetite.' and madame sent them a louis as a pledge of reconciliation. She could not bear to see anyone unhappy. Nana returned to the drawing-room, happy at having put an end to the tiff which was causing her some anxiety for the morrow, when Satin whispered quickly in her ear. She complained she threatened to go away, if those men teased her again, and she insisted on her darling sending them all off that night. It would be a lesson for them, and then it would be so nice to be alone together. Nana, again becoming anxious, swore that it was not possible. Then the other spoke harshly to her, like a passionate child insisting on having her own way. I insist on it, do you hear? Send them away or else I'll go. And she returned into the drawing-room and lay down on a sofa, away from the others and near a window, where she remained quite silent and as though dead, waiting with her large eyes fixed on Nana. 
the gentlemen were drawing their conclusions against the new theories of the writers on criminal law, with that wonderful proposition as to irresponsibility in certain pathological cases, there threatened to be no more criminals but only invalids. The young woman who kept nodding her approval was trying to think of a means of getting rid of the Count. The others would soon be going, but he would be sure to remain behind. And so it happened, when Philippe rose to leave, Georges followed him at once, his only anxiety was not to leave his brother behind him. Vandeuvre remained a few minutes longer. He sounded the ground. He waited to see if by chance some matter did not oblige Mifa to leave him in possession, but when he saw him evidently making himself comfortable for the rest of the evening, he did not persist, but took his leave like a man of tact. But as he moved towards the door he noticed Satin with her fixed look, and understanding no doubt and rather amused he went and shook her hand. "'Well, we're not angry, are we?' murmured he. "'Forgive me. On my word, you're the best of us after all.' Satin disdained to reply. She did not take her eyes off Nana and the Count who were now left to themselves. Being no longer under any restraint, Miva had gone and seated himself beside the young woman, and had taken hold of her fingers which he was kissing. Then she, to create a diversion, asked him if his daughter Estelle was better. The night before he had complained that the child seemed very melancholy. He could never spend a happy day in his own home with his wife always out and his daughter wrapped up in an icy silence. Nana was always full of good advice respecting these family matters. And as Mufa, his mind and his body upset, began again giving way to his lamentations, "'Why don't you get her married?' asked she, recollecting her promise and she at once ventured to speak of Dagonet. But at the mention of the name the Count showed his disgust. Never, after what she had told him. She pretended to be greatly surprised, then burst out laughing and putting her arms round his neck said, Oh, how can you be so jealous? Do be reasonable. He had been talking to you against me and I was furious. Today I am really sorry. But over Mifa's shoulder she encountered Satin's fixed gaze. Feeling uneasy, she let go of him and continued in a serious tone. My friend, this marriage must take place. I don't wish to prevent your daughter's happiness. He's really a very nice young man. You couldn't find a better one. And she launched forth into unbounded praise of Dagonet. The Count had taken hold of her hands again. He no longer said, no, he would see. They could talk of it another time. Then, as he spoke of going to bed, she lowered her voice and made objections. It was impossible. She was not well. If he loved her a little, he would not insist. However, he was obstinate. He would not leave, and she was already giving in when she again encountered Satin's fixed look. Then she became inflexible. No, it could not be. The Count, much affected and looking far from well, had risen and was seeking his hat. But at the door he recollected the set of sapphires the case containing which he felt in his pocket. He had intended hiding it at the bottom of the bed so that her legs might come in contact with it when she first got in. It was a big child's surprise which he had been planning ever since dinner. And in his confusion, in his anguish at being thus dismissed, he abruptly handed her the jewels. "'What is it?' asked she. "'Why, sapphires. "'Ah, yes, that set we saw. "'How kind of you. "'But I say, darling,' Do you think it's the same one? It looked better in the window. Those were all the thanks he had. She let him go. He had just caught sight of Satin waiting in silence on the sofa. Then he looked at the two women, and no longer persisting, he submissively went off. 
The house door was scarcely closed when Satin seized hold of Nana round the waist and danced and sang. Then, running to the window, she exclaimed, Let's see what a fool he looks outside. In the shadow of the curtains, the two women leant on the iron rail. One o'clock struck. The avenue de Villiers, now deserted, stretched far in the distance with its double row of gas lamps in the midst of that damp darkness of March, swept by great gusts of wind full of rain. Patches of unoccupied ground appeared as masses of shadow. Houses in course of construction displayed their tall scaffoldings beneath the black sky. And a mad fit of laughter seized the two girls as they caught sight of Mifa's round back moving along the wet pavement with the mournful reflection of his shadow across that icy empty plain of a new Paris. But Nana made Satin leave off. Take care, the police! Then they smothered their laughter, watching with a dumb fear two black figures walking in step on the other side of the avenue. Nana, in all her luxury, in her royalty of a woman whom everyone obeyed, had preserved a dread of the police, not liking to hear them spoken of any more than she did death. She felt uneasy whenever she saw a policeman look up at her house. One never knew what to expect from such people. They might very well take them for some low gay women if they heard them laughing at that time of the night. Satin tremblingly pressed close up against Nana. Yet they remained there, interested by the approach of a light dancing in the midst of the puddles on the pavement. It was the lantern of an old female rag-picker who was searching the gutters. Satin recognized her. "'Why,' said she, "'it's Queen Pomarie with her wicker cashmere.' And whilst the wind beat the fine rain in their faces, she told her darling Queen Pomarie's history. "'Oh, she was a superb woman once, and drove all Paris mad with her beauty.' She had such go, such cheek, used the men like animals, and often had grand personages weeping on her stairs. Now she had taken to drink, the women of the neighborhood amused themselves by giving her absinthe, and in the streets the urchins followed her, throwing stones. In short, a regular smash-up, a queen fallen into the mire. Nana listened, feeling very cold. You'll just see, added Satin. She whistled like a man. The rag-picker, who was under the window, raised her head and showed herself in the yellow light of her lantern. There appeared in that bundle of rags, beneath a big handkerchief in tatters, a scarred bluish face, with the toothless aperture of the mouth and the flaming loopholes of the eyes. And Nana, in front of this frightful old age of a courtesan drowned in alcohol, beheld in the darkness the vision of Chamon, that Irma d'Anglars, the retired prostitute, loaded with years and with honors, ascending the steps of her chateau, surrounded by a prostrate crowd of villagers. Then, as Satin whistled again, amused at the old hag who could not see her, she murmured in an altered tone of voice, Leave off, the police again. Let's go away, quick, my darling. The sound of footsteps returned. They closed the window. On turning round, Nana, shivering with her hair all wet, on beholding the room, remained, as it were, struck with astonishment, as though she had never seen it before, and had entered some unknown place. She found the atmosphere so warm, so perfumed, that she experienced a pleasant surprise. The wealth piled up around the ancient furniture, the gold and silk stuffs, the ivory, the bronzes, all seemed reposing in the rosy light of the lamps whilst from the now-hushed house there arose the sensation of a great luxury, the solemnity of the grand drawing-room, the comfortable amplitude of the dining-room, the peacefulness of the vast staircase with the softness of the seats and carpets. It was like an abrupt expansion of herself, 
of her requirements of domination and enjoyment, of her wish to possess everything merely to destroy it. Never before had she felt so strongly the power of her sex. She glanced slowly around her, and then said with an air of grave philosophy, Well, all the same, one is right in availing oneself of every opportunity when one is young. But Satin was already rolling about on the bearskins of the bedroom and calling her, Come quick, come quick. Nana undressed herself in the dressing room. To be ready quicker, she took her thick light hair in both hands and shook it over the silver basin, whilst a shower of long hairpins fell from it, ringing a chime on the shining metal. End of chapter 10